Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Tamson Willie Barker, an internationally known evolutionary anthropologist whose early work on social structure and speciation in wild baboons led to a greater understanding of the role of hybridization in the evolution of primates like us. She received her PhD in biological anthropology from the New York Consortium for Evolutionary Primatology and also received the first master's degree in biomimicry at Arizona State University. She's the director and founder of the Borrego Institute for Living Design, as well as the Dean for Biocultural Leadership at Geoversity Foundation. Her aim has been to catalyze a widespread shift from mechanistic thinking to what she calls living design, so we can collectively align with the ecological and evolutionary processes governing living things. She is the best-selling author of Teeming, How Nature's Oldest Teams Adapt and Thrive. This is regarded as a defining work in organizational biomimicry. I hope you enjoy. Well, Tamsin, it's wonderful to be with you today. And uh, actually, I'm quite honored. You have quite an extraordinary career. Uh, if I were to summarize it uh, and tell me if I'm incorrect, and that's okay too, but fundamentally the question is how does nature do it? And I think uh, you focused your whole life on this, uh, especially in the field of biomimicry. And um, uh, but what I'd like to start with is tell me about your relationship with baboons. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm an evolutionary biologist by training. So I spent my uh, earlier career in Ethiopia studying these two different kinds of baboons. And uh, they were really different in their social system. And but they hybridized in this whole zone, like a 25 mile zone. And so I was studying the way that speciation actually occurs through personal behavior, individual behavior. Uh, and now I apply that to my work. Well, and that's what interests me is uh, may maybe you can explain for the listeners what uh, hybridization actually is in the context of uh, speciation. Right, because er early on we thought these baboons were different species, you know, and the definition of a species is that they cannot interbreed and produce fertile young. But these baboons were, and what we found was that genes were crossing all over the place. And so we created a model for what human evolution would look like if this was true for us as well. So now we have the Neanderthal um, introgression. We know about that. And we know about the other species of humans that were interbreeding at that time as well. So uh, in simple terms, uh, perhaps for myself uh, as much as the listeners, what does all of that mean? Oh, I, yes. Well, it, different species. <laughs> Sorry, different species that come together and they are mating. And so they shouldn't be able to mate um, according to our traditional species hypotheses, but they do. And when they do, those some of those genes get through. And so we have Neanderthal genes within us and um, and this really changed our, our understanding of human evolution. Uh, speaking of Neanderthals, uh, tell me, uh, because it was initially thought that they were uh, quite primitive or uh, 
their brains did not uh, meet the match of the human brain. But I think that uh, whole interpretation has completely changed now. Absolutely. I mean, I think of them as humans just as much as we are. Um, they were clearly very artistic and they buried their dead, very, uh, you know, religious type of people, spiritual. And uh, we know they were fantastic hunters and craftsmen. And uh, I think we can be proud to call them our relatives. Our aunts, yes. Uh, but uh, on that note, though, uh, why did our relatives die out and we survive? Mm. Well, some of them live on within us, right? Some of our gene, their genes. Well, that's true. Within us. Um, but, you know, we, we don't really know. It could be that they had a slower life, you know, lifestyle. Uh, it just didn't breed as fast. Or it could be that the conditions weren't favorable to them. I don't think it was our intelligence. Um, I think it was uh, just the conditions were suitable to, for us. So, you know, when I mentioned it, when we started this idea of how would nature do it, uh, it seems as though you've really been focusing uh, uh, this mindset uh, shift from mechanistic thinking to, I think, what you call living design. Can you explain that a little bit more so that our listeners really understand uh, what you're focused on and really fundamentally how important that is? Yeah. Well, when I, you know, I, I got out of uh, evolutionary biology and when I went back into the workforce, I was in a corporate environment and I noticed the same kinds of behaviors that the baboons had uh, <laughs> in the CEOs and the executives. And so I started thinking, well, how can I apply this to what I see in corporate life and actually organizational life in general? Um, and so I started looking at, um, you know, I look at us as another animal just saying another animal. So what is the nature of this human being? And then when we say, you know, how does nature do it? We are nature. And so I think that is the fundamental shift that we need to make is that it's not humans and animals. It is just life. Uh, on that note, though, uh, why does it seem that we have such difficulty um interacting uh, as a species in terms of violence, hate, uh, lack of cooperation. Certainly, I know that in environments where uh, there is plenty, that seems to cut that down, uh, but it's in, it's in the context of scarcity or perceived scarcity. Maybe you can give us your thoughts on that. I mean, I know we, we definitely have the capacity for us and them. Um, you know, we're very group focused, tribal focused. And so it's easy for us to dehumanize others. Um, that's part of our species makeup. But if you look at foraging people, they they live very peacefully with one another and they have extensive rules for that. And um, they don't tolerate um, greed or lying and those kinds of things. So I think for us, it need, we need to go back and see what has happened to our societies that have actually damaged our fundamental human nature. Well, I, I can't remember, is it called Dunbarton's number? This number <laughs> where, yeah, if you exceed, what is it, 150 or so, that you have this sort of breakdown? And is that because you sort of can't keep track of that many people and that leads to cheating, if you will, or 
not acting uh, with the uh, intention of supporting the group, uh, but you more know, yourself? Yeah, that's Robin Dunbar's work. And uh, we actually shared a field site and we worked on some of the same baboons. Um, but what he noticed was that these gelata baboons were gathering in huge societies, much bigger than other uh, primates. And he also noticed that they spent a lot of time grooming each other and actually talking. They're actually always singing and making noise to each other. And so what he did was he he's found that our that brain size in primates correlates with group size and it correlates with the amount of time they groom each other. So um, you see, in, if you were a Martian zoologist and you came across a human being and you shot it with your ketamine blow dart and measured our brain, you would think that we live in groups of about 150 people. Uh, which actually turns out to be true if you look in military groups. Um, used to be the number of Christmas cards that British people sent each other was around 150. So you see this kind of uh, natural group size for us. It's an average. But what it happens to be uh, related to is the amount of time that we can spend relating to each other and forming really strong bonds. And so it's related exactly to what you were saying, trust. And then the way you can keep track of, of trust in your in your fellow humans. So, as we evolved, if you will, from the hunter gatherer tribes to society, uh, would you ascribe that uh, to one of the uh, challenges in terms of uh, us living peacefully, and uh, because we don't. Uh, have the time, if you will, to connect with so many people, and then that leads to this mentality of us versus them sometimes? Well, I think we just can't know each other, and so we can't build the trust. We're in these global societies where, you know, we don't know each other. And so how can we have the trust that we need to uh, hear a purpose and to do things that we really need to do? I mean, I, I look at, you know, um, climate change and these really big problems that we need to solve, we have all the answers, we know how to do it, but we can't do it because we don't have the trust. And the reason we don't have the trust is because our groups are too big and all of our, you know, tribal uh, trust bonds that are, you know, related to a place, a specific place and living there, those have all been damaged and broken, you know, slavery and migration, we've lost those connections. Oh, I think it's related to that. Well, so interestingly enough, you know, if you look back uh, in history and you look at the work of, um, uh, what's his name? Is it Boutner? Uh The um, Blue Zones. Uh, how does that interface with this then? You know, you look back at those uh, societies that are left who have increased longevity. Uh, is that a manifestation of sort of this disruption of our natural way of being? Yeah, I mean, you see, well, so I look at ant colonies and they have this kind of developmental arc and then, you know, they die out, they bud out. Um, that's just a process of the species and we have the same kind of process. So when you look at, you know, human civilizations, they have this like 2,000 year arc and I think we're just coming to the end of our 2,000 years. <laughs> And oh well, giant things just kind of crumble into into tribes, and the whole thing starts again. Uh, uh, is that an optimistic viewpoint, or <laughs> or, or not? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just uh, 
I, I look to the looky to the ants. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, though, because you comment on this, but, you know, you wrote this book, Teeming, How Superorganisms Work to Build Infinite Wealth in a Finite World. But in theory, you're creating a unified theory of what organizations must do to scale exponentially. But it sounds like fundamentally, at the end of the day, that's not really possible. Or am I uh, misunderstanding something? I don't know. You know, I mean, we're not really, socially, we're very flexible. We can do all kinds of things. We can live in these global societies. We can live in little tribes. Um, so we're very flexible that way. But I think that when organizations are trying to scale, they do it by trying to control it, by control the diversity, control it, standardize. You know, even from the youngest age, we're competing for grades and and then salaries and these kinds of things. But that's not how human societies work traditionally. You know, we we help each other, we develop each other, and collectively we can do all the things. So I see organizations shifting to these collective intelligence models and swarm creativity models and uh, distributed leadership and these things that allow organizations to scale but still maintaining that that kind of structure that we can maintain trust in collaboration with. So could you maybe give an example of a corporate environment, if that's possible, uh, that you've worked with and describe sort of the pre-intervention uh, uh, manner in which they behave versus the post-intervention manner and how that changed things and what was the ultimate ROI on that shift? Oh my goodness, what a question. <laughs> well, I can't uh, can't give you um, one of my companies, but I can give you an example of Borzorg, which is a um, Dutch um, healthcare company. So they're providing healthcare to people in neighborhoods, whereas before they would impose this global um, standard and then they would be sending the nurses out all over the place. And then they switch to this neighborhood model that the nurses and the patients all know each other, and they actually run the whole operation in little teams. So it's self-organizing. It's local. It is small and trust-based. And, um, you know, it's it's gone through the roof. It's, it's a model that um, has just changed healthcare in, in the Netherlands. And there's other companies that are using that kind of model, too, um, in manufacturing, it works very well. And uh, so I think it's something that companies are traditionally trying to implement best practices and quality control and actually manage diversity, really suppress it. Whereas in, you know, flexible societies, it's all based on self-organization and trust and shared purpose. So I think we can move to those kind of models. Well, you know, it's interesting if you look at the history of uh, uh what is it, the uh, World Monetary Fund, how they would go to countries and uh, without necessarily consulting the people who were having a problem, they impose uh, their will based on the um, assessment of their uh, uh, consultants without input from the local people and which repeatedly uh, was a disaster, I think. Oh, sure. I, I work with Geoversity, and um, that's a school in Panama. And it was founded by uh, Nathan Gray, who was the director of Oxfam America. And when they were working in Guatemala, the, 
they externally imposed these zinc roofs, metal roofs, um, and they just became these flying helicopter decapitation things. Whereas the local people were like, no, no, no. <laughs> but so we just, we don't ask. Um, and it's the way we do everything, really. Well, and I think that's really, a, you know, a key point is, one, uh, to have uh, respect for the people we're working with and uh, understand that oftentimes the thousands of years of traditions that they have are there for a reason because experientially they know it a lot better than somebody just walking in uh, thinking that uh, through their uh, if you want to call it modern training, they have greater insights than the people on the ground, obviously. Sure. I mean, we've been in a project we've been doing in uh, Kauai with uh, seeding change. We're helping to restore the traditional ahupua'as, and that's the way they would manage the water from the mountain to the sea so that they could support their people. And so now they're restoring that, in, and it's giving them food security, and it's also restoring those traditions that, you know, give the kids identity, you know, and hope. Well, maybe we can talk about that a little bit, too. Uh, uh, fundamentally, uh, what we're talking about is knowledge of indigenous peoples yeah. and how uh, through their own evolution, if you will, they have managed to integrate into nature and um, survive and thrive uh, based on their understanding of nature. And I wouldn't even see integrate. I would say that we always were. So it, it's emergent. You know, it's emerging from a place and the nature of a place. Um, and I, I think that if we can if we can restore that kind of worldview of relating to all our relatives in a place, you know, of any species, it, it's going to change. And, and, and the key word, like you said, is respect. Well, uh, uh, I study compassion, but fundamentally it all co comes down to creating an environment of psychological safety and uh, trust and respect and recognizing uh, everyone's dignity and uh, uh, not having a perception uh, that you are superior than anyone else. And I, th I think that's uh, one of the challenges, I think, if you look at the evolution of how uh, humans have acted. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there have been groups, primarily in Europe, who uh, decided to go to other countries and impose their view of what they felt there was uh, their superior uh, perspective. And seemingly, uh, it's created disaster all over the world at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And I, I expand that. For me, I mean, this living design is really about understanding that every living thing has evolved and survived since, you know, the beginning of time. So all of us are equal survivors with our own magic for doing that. Um, and uh, I think we forget that. So how would you call, uh, how would you define living design in the context of your work and uh, what that means practically? Uh -huh. Well, I mean, like I say, I see everywhere we're designing our world with this mechanistic thinking. And, you know, I think, you know, we look at these linear charts of doom and gloom and life's not like that. It's a complex adaptive system. It's it can turn on a dime. So I, I 
living design is understanding that and also understanding that the the specifics of a life emerge from a place, emerge from a water source or a story or a people and all of the individuals that live there, all different species. So living design is coming at things from that way and studying the way that life already is there and then aligning with it uh, rather than imposing our will. So uh, how do uh, indigenous peoples who uh, obviously uh, have been here a very long time, how do we integrate the modern world into the lessons that we can learn from indigenous peoples? Yeah, and that's a huge question. I mean, right now we're, we know that 80% of the world's biodiversity is managed by those 5% of the people who are indigenous. And so I think we're coming to a time where we need to learn how to, um, you know, manage the lands that we live in in a way that increases the potential for evolution in the future. And so that's increasing diversity. Um, diversity is the raw feedstock of that possibility. So I think thinking that way um, changes everything. So I think that's the number one thing that Indigenous people can teach us is that living mindset um, and getting away from that mechanistic thinking. Uh, again, respect. Respect and humility. Uh well, on that note, let's talk about the lack of that in uh, modern Western capitalistic society and how that interferes with our ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, capitalism is really all about extraction. And, you know, we all animals do that. You have to feed yourself and all that. So, you know, that's that's standard. But we're doing it in a way that depletes the future evolutionary potential. We're suppressing diversity suppressing individuals. And so in traditional societies, we would be observing each other and saying, wow, that person has an amazing talent. Let's develop them for the tribe. And so we would be doing that for each other. But we don't because we're competing for grades for them. We're competing for salaries. We're competing for promotions. And uh, I think that's a fundamental shift that we can learn from indigenous people. Well, uh Obviously, in theory, that's true, but how do you practically implement that or make that into a value proposition which people buy into? Right. You know, I, I would say that, unfortunately, uh, and I, I think especially in the context of people, uh, in fact, indigenous people sometimes who uh, buy the narrative of uh, extractive capitalism, believing that that narrative, which includes a definition that success relates to power, position, money, uh, leads to happiness. And as you well know, uh, nothing could be uh, uh, more wrong than that narrative. Yet, so many people from third world countries come here and, uh, uh, frankly, I think are extraordinarily disappointed, uh, yet this continues. And we continue also to get um, uh, ever-increasing uh, uh, power differential or income inequality, which leads to ever-increasing suffering by the poor or, frankly, the people uh, with whom um, their talents or abilities or 
productivity are being extracted? Yeah. Um, well, I think increasingly we're going to see that the value proposition demands it because we can't, you know, with the climate change and with refugee crises and, and war and poverty and all these things, it's very, it creates a lot of instability. Um, and so I think we're going to see that more and more organizations want to shift the way they work <clears throat> so that they can be more flexible, more purpose-oriented, and um, actually switch to a regenerative models where we are growing community potential. And then people don't need to leave home. You know, they, they, can, they can grow the possibility where they are. Well, I think that is ideally or would ideally be the case. I, I think, as an example, I was with the King of Bhutan recently, and we were talking about the fact that prior to TVs being introduced... <laughs> Uh, uh, the culture did not have a perception of what was happening outside of Bhutan. And frankly, they were, uh, it, while it's a very poor country, uh, people uh, survived and they had a, f a very strong uh, family culture. And then with the introduction of TV, which gives them a, a frankly, a false view of uh, the value proposition of capitalism, it's resulted in about 10% uh, of the young pop or 10% of the population, primarily young, leaving the country and not returning. Yeah, and I, and that's something you see. You know, indigenous elders are always complaining about that. The the kids find out about all the good stuff and off they go. Um, but you know, like in the uh, San hunter gatherers. Um, they saw that happening in the 60s and 70s. But by the 90s, um, those children had actually come back. And they had been disappointed, like you say, and they'd come back. But luckily for them, that happened in the space of a generation or two. And so they didn't lose their knowledge, their biocultural knowledge, the stories and all of that. But, you know, in Native American groups, you see a lot of that biocultural knowledge is gone forever. So it, it's, you know, we really are in a position of having to actually regenerate the knowledge. And so I think it's, um, you know, we've got to teach people to see and about those ecological relationships and the way that change occurs and, and all those things. Well, I think, unfortunately, uh, the nature of uh, colonialist behavior uh, was intentionally to destroy the culture uh, that was indigenous to that area uh, to, at least I think in their belief system, to teach them about uh, a better way, uh, which obviously uh, was quite wrong. Yeah. And you did lose all of this knowledge. Uh, right. But, uh, and I think one of the reasons people leave also is they get into their head that uh, their culture or the situation they're in is actually inferior uh, and if they leave, uh, they'll uh, uh, sort of uh, be in the modern world. But yeah. uh, I think, as you well know, uh, the modern world uh, is not the best place to be. Well, in Geoversity, we work with the Kuna people, and they have a semi-autonomous territory. But now they're seeing, you know, their island communities are going underwater because it's uh, because of climate change. So they've had this whole phenomenon of the youth leaving, like you say, because they want the fancy clothes, they want all the stuff. 
And then now, you know, there's a, a, a rising um, demand for that, for the culture and to protect the elders. And, and so we're seeing that, that swing back. Um, and I suspect that we're going to see that more generally. Even in America, you know, people that have been removed from their home cultures and the old country for so long are, are craving it. You know, they're craving that, that back to nature and to know the places they live. Well, uh, tell me a little bit more about Geoversity and some of the work you're doing there and in uh, um, Borrego Springs and other places in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, well, um, so I uh, started working with Geoversity maybe four years ago, and uh, it's in Panama. It's a 30-year organization, and it's based on, uh, it's really conservation. But over time, it's become apparent that the working with indigenous populations is the best way to do conservation. So it's based on that. And it's based on sharing, you know, facilitating communication between indigenous groups, campesinos, the government, um, regenerative tourism is, is emerging, you know, and, and developmental le leadership. So um, teaching English and that kind of thing. But what recently came out of it was this incredible film, The Endangered Generation, which is an Australian film by um, Celeste Gear. She's a she won it at Cannes some years ago, and um, so she follows uh, a climate activist, Agar Tejada, and myself down uh, this river in Panama. So we're crossing the Americas really, and we're talking to the chiefs about climate change and what can what could be done and what's happening. Um, so that was just amazing and that's actually debuting now. Um, so that was that was amazing and, and uh, so we showed that in the Kuna territory and then they're making the, the Mola sail. You might have seen this at COP26, that sail that they made and the women came together and sewed this traditional sail that is really related to their island communities going under for climate change and providing hopeful models for other indigenous groups to uh, reclaim their their power in the face of climate change. Well, one of the interesting things that I found is that um, indigenous peoples are now uh, coming together as a group uh, to uh, uh, impart their knowledge and also express their concern and offer that knowledge to help us move forward in this modern world. Uh, do you have any comments on that? It's really inspiring. And then you saw it at Standing Rock, you know, people, indigenous peoples from all over the world coming together uh, to support, um, you know, water protection. And then Mauna Kea as well, uh, just a huge uprising of, uh, you know, land source knowledge and wisdom. And um, so I, th I think that's really inspiring for all those communities, but also for everyone watching. A uh, friend of mine actually was, uh, I don't know if the right word is, inducted into this uh, Council of the Eagle and the Condor. Have you heard of that? Yeah, with uh, Phil Lane, hereditary. Yes, Lane, uh, yes. Ah, I know Phil. Uh, the uh, my friend, his he's from actually the UK, 
Uh, his name is uh, uh, Stephen Vasconcellos Sharp. I don't know if you have run no. across him. He uh, he and I have worked together on some projects related to uh, compassion, as well as uh, if you want to call it reimagining the future in terms of getting back to some of these things that we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's really exciting, the work that uh, Phil is doing and uh, the Compassion Games, if you know John Raymer. Um, and he's actually been going to different cities and, and creating competitions of kindness. Uh, so that's, that's inspiring. But the two of them work together closely, and it is a radical collaboration between worldviews. And so um, I think that's that's the way of the future. I, I love it. Well, no, I think that term is actually correct. Uh, yeah, I know have known John a long time, uh, and uh, it's interesting just to comment on that. Uh, when they started the Compassion Games, if I recall correctly, it was uh, initially uh, between Louisville and was it uh, Seattle? Yeah. And I think uh, uh, to really give emphasis to this idea of compassion, the mayor of Louisville actually flew to Seattle to assist them beating Louisville. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And uh, John is really doing some, uh, John and Phil working together are doing amazing things, creating these deep transformational networks um, where we can do change. And that's that one world community. I don't know if you know that one, but um, we're actually putting teaming into the DNA of that. Oh, well, tell me a little bit more about One World. It's interesting. I was just in Belfast, and there's uh, One Young World, which is a group of youth activists, uh, but I, I'm i sure it's separate from One World. Well, I, I One World is an amorphous thing. Um, I haven't quite grasped this organism yet, but it, it's it's big and sprawling, and everyone's dedicated to you know, peace, world peace. Um, and so what I, what we did this summer was this 99 days of radical collaboration for that community where we invited everyone to declare a purpose, a mission. And we had a, a, a structure for that, that mirrored living systems, you know, this nested interconnected structure. And then we took it through levels of paradigm so that it would reveal these differences in worldview so that we could radically collaborate. And then we went into process, you know, evolutionary processes, ecological processes, and, um, you know, really deep stuff, and then people in place. Um, and so it, was, it really was a radical collaboration between all kinds of indigenous groups and uh, the one world community. Um, and, and it was amazing to see the, the missions develop and I, I th we'll do that next year as well. Oh, wonderful. Um, well, let's talk a little bit more about sort of what is it that is the most important thing on your agenda, or what is it, if you sort of call what you're doing, uh, what is the thing that you would call success in your efforts? Yeah, well, for me, you know, when I'm driving around, I, I'm a plant geek, and so I'm looking at the the plants and the ecology, and it just really kills me to see the simplification of the land, the monocrops and the big box stores and the just golf courses and that. So success to me looks like um, restoring complexity 
and diversity. Um, but to do that, I mean, I'm working with the organizations, with companies, with, uh, you know, where they're ready to work, which is teams and in the, the processes of teamwork. But then I think the most important thing is actually learning to see, learning to see diversity and learning to see these relationships. So if I can get people out to this ranch, it's a 86 acre ranch out in Borrego Springs and, um, you know, helping them see, draw, attract, uh, bushcraft, storytelling, traditional arts. Um, we're looking at stars. It's an international dark sky community. So my big project right now is uh, building this campground um, and, and welcoming people to come learn. Well, you know, it's sort of interesting because you're talking about monoculture, and I'm sure you appreciate that diversity is not profitable. And what I mean by that is uh, it's not scalable, while uh, if you have a monoculture, uh, that is scalable. And uh, uh, obviously, uh, the bottom line with this is profit. Uh, even to at the expense of the health of the people who are consuming these products. Right. No, that's absolutely the case. Um, and, and that's what we see with the organizations as well. You know, the, the more you can simplify and standardize with best practices and all that, then you can scale. And that's what we're trying to do all the time, right? So that we have to put less effort in. Um, but you know, like you say, it, it comes at the expense of future possibility and resilience and even just our collective intelligence. Um, and so I think there is a business proposition to be made for that. And uh, but it's aligning you know, look at quarterly profits. How are you going to do something in a quarter? Um, well, of course, that's the problem with the stock market and having uh, shareholders who uh, demand results. And unfortunately, it's also a manifestation of the fact that, you know, the average lifespan of a CEO is about five years. And the type of people who become CEOs oftentimes are ones who want to extract for themselves the greatest amount of profit. So they aim at a timeline of five years uh, and uh, the entire time they're manipulating uh, the corporation so that it benefits them at the end of the day without necessarily having a long-term view of uh, the ultimate cost of that behavior. Yeah. I mean, I think long-term we're going to have to, if we're going to stick with capitalism, we're going to have to reinvent it so that it grows communities and grows ecosystems. Yeah. Uh, and, I don't know you how. Know, <laughs> well, but that, that's... Uh, I think people are looking for that answer is how do you do that? Because, you know, if we look at the various alternatives, uh, um, capitalism, uh, and I would, I, I would put in the context of regulated capitalism, uh, meaning that uh, governments, uh, as much as some corporate entities uh, dislike regulation, uh, that is the only way you can have uh, fair capitalism versus this notion that we should decrease the size of government and allow corporations to do whatever they wish uh, with them promising with their fingers crossed that they're going to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, big changes have to be made. Um, and, and you know, I, I think it probably comes down to private ownership and, and models of that because, you know, it just kills me when I'm driving down 
the road. I can't even do anything about some land, you know, that's behind someone's fence. Um, and yet that's the land that we all depend on. You know, all the animals depend on that. Um, we, so something's got to give. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because uh, probably almost anywhere you travel, which is a rural area, you see hundreds of thousands of acres and they're fenced. And But I, I always wonder who owns those. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it just makes me crazy. And so I found that a lot of that land is owned by the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. And so that's us, right? <laughs> we own it. And yeah. it, it those lands are destroyed. They're just mode to one species. And so we have that power, I think, to reclaim that. Well, I, uh, or we have the possibility to reclaim it. I don't know if we have the power yet to reclaim it. <laughs> because, of course, you have these uh, formidable forces. As an example, I mean, I'm sure you're aware that a lot of the BLM land has been um, leased to corporate entities, as an example, to feed cattle, right? Of course. I mean, that's what you see is the cattle mowing it all down. And it's it's an extractive model. It's we applied to our federal lands. And we take it for granted now, but it doesn't have to be that way. Well, no, that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at the cost of feeding a cow and the water, it's <laughs> massive compared to, as an example, uh, 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 growing crops, right? Right. Uh, comparatively, uh, unfortunately, I think that uh, we have been sold into believing that we need to eat a lot of beef uh, or other meat, and then this gets back to what you're talking about monoculture, where whether it's beef, whether it's chickens, uh, or other uh, types of uh, farm animals, we've industrialized that. Yeah. Uh, uh, to the negative benefit, not only of the animals, of course, uh, but to us humans as well. Yeah, the other animal. <laughs> this, um, right. Yeah, bring back the buffalo. <laughs> what if we did uh, that? Well, you know, that's sort of funny because I'm sure you've seen those photographs where people are walking up to the buffalo somehow thinking they're pets. And yeah. uh, uh, it's sort of a, a frightening uh, thing. Perfect example of the work I'm trying to do. You know, it just if we can get people to open their eyes and understand life and the way it works, you know, and have humility and respect for it, all life, I think uh, we we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. So, how do we get people, though? Do you think to recognize that uh, that they're part of a whole that uh, without respect for the whole? respect for other species, uh, respect for the land, ultimately respect for the planet, that we will all perish. And as you know, if you look at the planetary boundaries, uh, we've exceeded a number of these. Uh, and uh, so where do we go from here? And will it take ultimately a massive crisis? I mean, we already look at how weather has changed and these parts of the world that are going uh, to increase their temperature significantly, that will make them ultimately uninhabitable. And there right. are millions of people in these areas. Right. I think we're going about it in the wrong way. Um, you know, the focus has been on uh, uh, curbing emissions, recycling, and, and, and these kinds of things. But really, I think if we were to shift to doing 
away from sustainability and more in towards growing potential, growing diversity and learning about the land that you live on and the species there and how the interactions, the relationships. Um, and I think you already see this in schools. I, I see that with my kids that the focus is very biological, ecological, whereas it was not um, when I was younger. So I think it comes from that, you know, learning how to restore the water in your community. It starts there. Well, if we look at, though, what has happened, uh, and probably in most countries, uh, we've taken individuals who were in rural areas and through the industrialization of farming or growing uh, uh, or animal production, uh, which uh, can be done by a very small number of people uh, through the mechanization of it. And uh, this has pushed so many people into major cities, which is the thing that separates them from nature. Uh, you know, how do you uh, reverse that? Well, it's really interesting because that move to the cities is the key event that drops um, and the number of children you decide to have. So it, it does have the effect of reducing overpopulation. Um, but like you say, it also severs people from that connection and from their cultural memory. Um, and so I, I think, you know, once that stuff is lost, it's very difficult to get back languages and um, all the knowledge that we have. But I think it's going to take a concerted effort to remember that old knowledge and save it. Do you think that's going to take suffering by a lot of people to get people's attention at the end of the day? Well, I think people are going to suffer, yeah. I think there's there's going to be a lot of death and destruction. I do. But I also think that we have the answers and that we'll, we'll do what we need to do. You know, people have always been so flexible. Even our, our species, you know, might have been down to, I think it was 1,500 individuals at one point in our history. And so we're nothing if not flexible and persistent. Well, uh, and, you know, perhaps that uh, maybe what at the end of the day it takes is uh, uh, a mass die-off. I mean, if you look at uh, the oceans right now where uh, uh, there's the potential uh, extinction of a lot of species where there will be collapse of the oceans, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if there are no food stuff, uh, either, uh, we're, we're going to have a serious problem here. And uh, so, uh, in terms of your own work, what would you like to see in terms of sort of your lasting legacy, uh, as far as the work that you've been done? You've done. Is it related to uh, organizational change in the modern world? Is it related to? Uh, your understanding or knowledge of biomimicry? Is it related to perhaps uh, training or giving insight to younger people? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the youth are always the key. You know, I, I'd like to think that I could leave a legacy of opening eyes and changing minds, you know, that if people could just actually see the miracle that's all around us, uh, I would consider that um, a good legacy. But from that, you know, can we learn those processes and start designing our lives that way? 
um, we know we have the capability because we did it before. And uh, so I, I would like to see that. But, you know, as you were, or you indicated, though, uh, culture seemed to last about 2,000 years or so, and then they collapse. Well, uh, civilizations. <laughs> well, okay, we'll call it civilizations. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, and wh what are we calling our civilization right now? Is that confined to the Americas? Is it uh, Europe? Uh, what What is the civilization then that uh, you were alluding to? I think it's the Romans still. <laughs> this is the, the last dying gasp of the Roman Empire. I see. Um, I, I, I see. <laughs> uh, well, uh, maybe as we close, you can uh, maybe give us uh, three insights that all of us could benefit from in terms of improving the world, not only for ourselves, but the future generations. Yep. Mm. Well, I'd say, you know, study the world around you, study the flows, study the way that life actually works, and then try to design your systems and processes around that um, rather than imposing it. That would be one. Um, two would be, I think it's really important to understand the nature of this uh, human animal, you know, that we're not like chimpanzees, we're not competitors. We are more like super organisms, like ants and bees, and we, we help and share. Um, and can we design our world to bring out the best in our species? And three? Three? <laughs> well, I want people to, to reconnect to land, the places that they live, and learn about the place and the stories, the source, the water sources, the the way that the land is actually trying to be and, and enhance them. Well, um, I agree. Uh, you know, if people take a little bit more time also, I think, to uh, connect with others and recognize that oftentimes what seems to separate is actually uh, fear of people uh, who have anxiety about how they are in this world because they don't have the support systems that they traditionally had, yet everyone wants to connect. And so creating that environment uh, of safety and trust, um, at the end of the day, I think, uh, will have a profound impact on um, whether our species survives. I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I think that inclusive, welcoming, belonging as you are is the root of the whole thing. That is true. I agree with you. Well, listen, thanks so much, Tamsin, for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll be doing actually a little introduction to give a little bit more details about you and your work. Uh, and uh, I hope our past center act again or cross again or interact or whatever the word's supposed to be until we meet again well thank yes. you this has been a real pleasure well listen you take care you too Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>